So we are starting a new message series today, um, and this series is titled Hebel. And I, and I realize that right now you have no idea what that means, but after today, you will. Um, and, but we are studying in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so this is going to be a six-week series as we study through this book. Now, this book, and again, today, we're setting the foundation. We're giving the intro, the overall view of the book, because the book of Ecclesiastes is not a simple book. It is not one that we, uh, you know, read a lot in devotionals. It's not one that we hear a lot of sermons about. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this series. Okay, yeah, I've grown up in, my, I've been in church my entire life, and I've never heard somebody preach through Ecclesiastes. Okay, and so, um, so I was like, you know what, we're going to rise to the challenge. We're going hit it, to hit it head on. And so today, we're laying that foundation. Okay, and so um, as we start with that, again, I encourage you to follow along with me on the outline that was uh, in, the, uh, in, in the bulletin. And again, and I'll premise it by saying, hang with me today. Okay, because, again, we've got to lay this foundation, we've got to set it, and as I said, we're, where we're going is going to be exciting. Okay, but, uh, so hang with me today as we build the foundation uh, for this study. So we are, again, studying not just the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're focusing on that, but the book of Ecclesiastes is a part of a section of Scripture called the wisdom literature. Okay, and so as we study the wisdom literature, okay, the question would be, what is the wisdom literature? Right, and why do we need to study it? Now, the wisdom literature is, is a group of books within the Bible okay, that seek to answer the question, what does it mean to live life well? Okay, what does it mean to live life well? Now, I've never met anybody that gets up in the morning and says, I really want to see how much I can mess up my life today. Okay, that, that's not the way we start out right, any day. And yet, we oftentimes, even, this, even subconsciously, do start out maybe with this question, right? How can I live life well today? Right? We don't, again, want to look back and be like, look how, look how, look how much I, I destroyed my life. We want to look back and say, look how well I live. Okay? And the wisdom literature seeks to use the wisdom of God, right, and to apply that into our lives and say, how can we truly live life well? Okay, now... Um, the, the wisdom literature is made up of three different books of the Bible. They're all in the Old Testament. And in fact, they are in the poetry section of the Old Testament. Now, I don't know if you've ever asked the question or wondered why are the books of the Bible grouped in the way that they are. Okay, because, again, they're not haphazardly. They are, they're, they're put in there very carefully in the order they're in. Okay, they're all grouped together by literary form. Okay, now, what that means, right, is that there's different forms of literature, right, in writing, and there's a ton of different forms of literature in the Bible, okay, there are a bunch of letters in the Bible, okay, all of the letters are grouped together in the New Testament, okay, there are the Gospels, which a Gospel is the story about Jesus's life, all four of the different Gospels are grouped together, right, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're all put together right in the middle of our Bible, okay, also there are other books, like there are historical books in the Bible, they're all grouped together, that's the books of First, Second Chronicles, Kings, and Samuel, Okay, those are all put together. Again, those are just the history of Israel. Okay, there are prophecy books that are all put together. And then there are poetry books. Okay, and and the, the three books of the wisdom literature are right in the middle of the poetry section. Okay, now, just as we, if you remember back to, to high school English class, right, is there's lots of different forms that poetry can take. Some of them read like a narrative. Some read just these little kind of, you know, fortune cookie um, sayings, 
right? Some of them rhyme, some of them have different rhythms, all these different things. But poetry is a very kind of wide, wide range of literary form. And all of the, all three books that, are, that, that make up the wisdom are poetry books. And so they're all kind of grouped together. And the first one is the book of Proverbs. Okay, the book of Proverbs is the first book of the wisdom literature. And each of these three books of the wisdom literature comes at this, this um, purpose of what does it mean to live life well, comes at it from a different voice or a different perspective. Now, the book of Proverbs um, is poetry and it's wisdom, but it comes across kind of with a voice of a caring grandma giving advice to her grandchildren on how to do life well. This is how you will be successful in life. You get do this and get that. Okay, and when we read through Proverbs, again, you, you sense that tone, right? It's, very, it's a caring and loving tone of how do we apply wisdom to, to do life. Okay, so again, it's the tone kind of of mother wisdom. Again, if you use wisdom, it will bring you success. And that's how you'll do life well. Okay, so that's where we start. We start with the book of Proverbs. Now, the next book is the book of Ecclesiastes, and it comes at it from a completely opposite angle. Okay, it comes from a voice of a critic. Okay, a person who looks at life and says, the world does not make sense. Okay, the world is a hard place. Okay, in fact, a very kind of pessimistic attitude. Okay, the one that comes at this of saying, even if you live life with wisdom, it's all going to end up meaningless anyways. And so with that premise said, right, as we start this study of Ecclesiastes, as I will tell you, this is not an incredibly uplifting book. Okay? And so consider yourself warned. Okay? Just as we jump, jump into this, like that's the perspective we're coming from. So we have kind of two sides of the coin. We have Proverbs that comes with the, the, the optimistic mother wisdom voice, right? This is how to be successful in life. We have Ecclesiastes, which is the critic, right, pessimistic view of the world. And then the last wisdom book is the book of Job. Okay, now Job is, is a narrative story, okay, about a righteous servant of God, and his name is Job. Okay, and then um, as you see in the book, right, is um, it uh, proposes that the only reason Job loves God is because of the blessings that God has given him. And so God says, well, let's test that proposal. And so then, um, again, we, we've all heard the story of Job, typically, right? He loses everything. Okay? Everything is taken away from him to see it as he still loved God. Okay? In fact, he's saying, again, if, 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 if it wasn't for blessings, then humans would not love God at all. Right? And that, that's the premise, the proposal in the book. And then we see in Job as we go through, and there's all kinds of human wisdom through Job and through his, several of his friends that show up and try to apply earthly wisdom to Job's situation to try and figure out why this is happening to him. Okay, and then we get to the end of the book of Job, right, which is where God shows up, okay, and God kind of gives Job an explanation, but he actually, he never resolves the question. Okay, God shows up and just tells Basically, that God is God, and he shows him, like, I'm God, you're not, right? I'm the one that figures out how things work, um, and your wisdom has no, no reasoning or application or does not change anything. Okay, so again, the conclusion of that narrative story, right, is that God is God, and neither human wisdom or earthly experiences are going to change that fact. And I said, the very interesting thing about Job is that it doesn't, it never resolves. 
right? God shows up and just and says his peace that I'm God and I'm in control. And then the book just stops. It ends. Right? And it never, it never gives us the conclusion. Now, with that is all we need to understand that within the wisdom literature is these are three very distinct pieces of a big puzzle. Okay? And, and when we look at, again, to get the whole picture, we have to put all three of these books together. Okay? And that which make up, then, the wisdom literature section of the Bible. Now, there are other poetry books that some people like to group into the wisdom literature. Okay, parts of Psalms and the book of Song of Psalms. Okay, now these, these are books, they kind of loosely fit, but most, most scholars believe and don't put them into, group them with these three of wisdom literature. But you might even see that at some point. Okay, and these are ones, again, they're in that same section of poetry. Okay, ones, but again, these books as well have very specific purposes. So as we realize we are studying the wisdom literature, we see three pieces of the bigger puzzle. We are going to, as I said, hone in on the book of Ecclesiastes. Because as, as your pastor, I was thinking, how can I encourage the congregation the most? I'll choose the most pessimistic book in the entire Bible. That sounds like a good idea. Right? But that, that's where we're headed. That's where we're diving into the book of Ecclesiastes. But uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is a tough book. In fact, it is one of the toughest books to grasp in the entire Bible. Um, it is probably at the top of the list, probably tied with the book of Revelation, right, for the most misinterpreted, misconstrued books of, the, of all of Scripture. Okay, and so with that said, is we're going to be looking at it. Again, I want to, to lay the foundation, right, so that as we dive into this book and as we work through it, to realize that there are some things, again, we have our foundation solid. Right? We understand the voice. We understand what the purpose of this book Okay, and so we aren't going to just ignore it because it's tough, right? We're going to meet it head on, and we're going to figure it out. Okay, and as we work through that, um, again, realize that the book of Ecclesiastes is very complex, right? And it has some very confusing language, just like the book of Revelation does, right? Which is why we typically just, we'll just ignore it. We'll just throw it to the side, and we'll move on to more encouraging things. But as we start, I want to start with the authorship of Ecclesiastes. Okay, the, the traditional author of Ecclesiastes um, is, is Solomon. Okay, now Solomon was the king of Israel. Okay, he was the son of David, and so he was, he was the one who took the throne from David. Okay, now this is the same David that killed Goliath. Okay, this is the same David that led Israel into its most prosperous time until Solomon came along. Okay, it was their most, David was, again, a man after God's own heart is his biblical legacy. Okay, and he was, he was a king who led Israel right. Okay, and now, um, again, Solomon, who is the son of David, who gets the throne from him, okay, was most, is most widely known as, as, as the wisest man to ever live. Okay, he's known for his wisdom. Okay, and I want to start um, today by looking at, again, the foundation of who Solomon is, because we need to really understand this author right, to get what he's, what he's writing. So we're actually starting our series on Ecclesiastes, not in Ecclesiastes. We're going to start in 2 Chronicles. Okay, so if you have your Bible with you, please open with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 1. If you don't chapter 1, we're going to start at verse 1. And again, this is telling us about King Solomon. Okay, 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 1. Solomon, son of David, took firm, firm control of his kingdom, 
for the Lord his God was with him and made him very powerful. Solomon called together all the leaders of Israel, the generals and, and captains of the army, the judges and all the political and clan leaders. And then he led the entire assembly to the place of worship in Gibeon, for God's tabernacle was located there. This was the tabernacle that Moses, the Lord's servant, had made in the wilderness. David had already moved the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim to the tent uh, he had prepared for it in Jerusalem. But the bronze altar made by Belzazel, the son of Uri, and the grandson of Hur, was there at Gibeon in front of the tabernacle of the Lord. So Solomon and the people gathered in front of it to consult the Lord. And there in front of the tabernacle, Solomon went up to the bronze altar in the Lord's presence and sacrificed a thousand burnt offerings on it. That night, God appeared to Solomon and said, What do you want? Ask, and I will give it to you. And Solomon replied to God, You showed, you showed faithful love to David my father, and now you have made me king in his place. O oh Lord God, please continue to keep your promise to David my father, for you had made me king over people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me the wisdom and knowledge to lead them properly, for who could possibly govern this great people of yours? And then God said to Solomon, because your greatest desire is to help your people, and you did not ask for wealth, riches, fame, or even the death of your enemies for a long life, but rather you asked for wisdom and knowledge to properly govern my people, I will certainly give you the wisdom and knowledge that you requested, but I will also give you wealth, riches, and fame such as no other king has had before you or will ever have in the future. Then Solomon returned to Jerusalem from the tabernacle at the place of worship in Gibeon, and he reigned over Israel. So we see as the baton is passed, again, from David to Solomon, he takes control of, of the country of Israel, right? He sits on the throne, and the first thing he does as king is to go and consult God, right? He followed in his father's footsteps, right, who served God as king and said, I want to rule just like my dad did. Okay, and, and, and so he did that, and, and he ends up, and he meets God here, and God says, hey, since, you know, here you are, you, you want to lead, um, you know, what do you want? How can I help you, right? I'll just ask for whatever it is. I'll give it to you. Okay, and he asked for wisdom, okay, which is why, right, he is known as the wisest man to ever live, right, because he's literally living with the wisdom of God, right, not with human wisdom, but with God's wisdom, okay, that was given directly from God. Now, uh, notice as well, right, is that, that God says, hey, I, I, I love this answer. I love that you didn't ask for anything selfish, right? That it, was, it was all about to honor me and to, to, to lead well. And so not only will I give you wisdom, but with that wisdom, you will find wealth and pleasure and fame and power and, and get all of the things that, that come with, with living life well. Right? And so re remember, as we read these words, this is coming from a man who literally had every earthly desire you can imagine okay he had power right he had fame he had notoriety he had wealth he had women he had it all everything that we humanly seek after in this world for pleasure solomon had at his fingertips okay and yet right he comes um to this question, and he gives us this voice in Ecclesiastes, right, that is from a pessimistic side, right? Again, Solomon had had incredible wealth and prosperity himself, but he also led Israel into their most prosperous season 
as a nation. Okay, it was a time of peace. It was a time of prosperity for Israel. Um, in fact, his biggest accomplishment as king was building the permanent temple in Jerusalem. Okay, and this is something that, again, his father David longed to do, but God told him to wait, that it wasn't his role. It was going to be his successor who did it, and his successor was Solomon, and he did it. He built the temple. Okay, now later that temple was destroyed, and when they went into, uh, again, into exile, but then later after exile, that, build, that temple was rebuilt, and this is the same temple then that Jesus taught in later throughout the history of Israel. Okay, there, now, as we look at, again, this book of Ecclesiastes, there is some structure to the book, but it is a very loose structure. Okay, in fact, most of the book is, is ramblings, and he bounces around different, to different topics, just all of these different observations and experiences that he has as king of Israel, um, and, and we, he, he jumps around a lot. But um, here is what structure is there I want to give you this morning. One is we realize that there, um, there are two voices in Ecclesiastes. Okay, they're given kind of as two sides of a coin. Okay, and the first one is the voice of the author. Okay, and the author gives us the big picture view of life and of life with wisdom. Okay, and the big, he's a big picture thinker, and he always points towards the positive. Okay, so again, he's the one that kind of steps back listens to everything the other voice says, and, and points it back towards the positive. Now, notice, though, the author does not have a huge role in the book. Okay? And he has two verses at the very beginning, okay, verses 1 and 2, the first two verses, and then the last few verses in chapter 12. Okay, so the author opens the book and then gives us the final conclusion of the book, and everything in between okay, is the voice of the teacher. And that is the other voice in the book, okay, and that is from verses 1, 3 through 12, 7. So the, the vast majority of the book is coming from the teacher's voice. Okay, the teacher is one who is a skeptic and a pessimist about the way the world works. Now, I know we've all met pessimistic people before, right? We know where they come from, right? In fact, um, most, you know, optimistic people like to find a silver lining. The pessimistic person just points at the dark cloud, right? The pessimistic person is the one who will, even when everybody's excited and joyful, they can find something wrong, right? We all know a pessimist. Maybe you're a pessimist yourself. And if you are a pessimist yourself, you're going to love the tone of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> okay, but as we realize, again, we see these two voices, but the majority of it, again, is the voice of the teacher. Okay, now, um, the, the, the start and the end of the teacher's ramblings about life, okay, is chapter 1, verse 2, and chapter 12, verse 8. Okay, and these are the bridge between the author and the teacher. Okay, and these verses, these two verses are exactly the same. Okay, so Ecclesiastes 1.2 and Ecclesiastes 12.8, where it says, everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. I know, we're all excited, aren't we? Right? Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. Right? And again, we, we get the tone already in just this one verse, right? This is the verse that bookends all of the teaching of the teacher. 
okay, this is the start and this is the end, okay, is that everything is meaningless. Okay, as we could tell, right, again, not the most uplifting book. Even as I read it, it kind of sucks all the hope out of the room. Okay, and, and now with that said, though, is there's this word that is in this, these verses that is translated as meaningless. Again, the Bible was not originally written in English. Okay, so everything, what we have is a translation. That's why we have different versions of the Bible, okay, because we have different translations. Anytime you move between languages, you know, there are words that do not translate directly. Okay, and so this word that is used in this verse, okay, is used a lot in this book. Okay, in fact, it is used 38 times in 12 chapters. Okay, and this verse that is translated in, in the NLT version as meaningless, okay, um, is, is used 38 times, as I said. Okay, um, again, not an easy word to translate. This is one of these, is, it was originally written in Hebrew. This is a Hebrew word that um, does not have an English equivalent. And therefore, we see a lot of translators really struggle with this word. Okay, now if you have an NIV Bible or an NLT Bible, it's translated as meaningless. Okay, if you have a King James Bible or NRSV Bible, it's translated as vanity. Okay, now, like I said, this is a very tough word. It's one that, that is not um, easily, um, you know, translated. And so that's why we see different versions, okay, and different. But here's the definition of this word. Okay, the Hebrew word is the word hebel. And so that, that is the word that is used, again, 38 times in 12 chapters. Okay, now, um, again, hebel is a word that is not easily grasped or defined. Okay, the, the, the again, scholarly definition of hebel is this, is an emptiness or vanity, something transitory and unsatisfactory, like a smoke or a vapor. It is beautiful and mysterious, an enigma. It's a person or thing that is mysterious, puzzling, or difficult to understand. Okay, now as we read the definition of this word hebel, okay, as we realize basically, right, it's getting this connotation of that it's, some, it's something that is unexplainable. Right, it's something just like a smoker vapor. It, it, a vapor, it looks like it's a solid thing, but if you reach for it and try and grasp for it, there's nothing there. Okay, it is... There's some beauty to it, right? We can recognize the beauty of this concept, and yet there's also the other side of it, right, that is incredibly mysterious, right? It, it is a question that doesn't really have an answer. It is a situation that we want to justify but can't find the words. It is hebel. It is a word that is hard to understand. And yet, the wisest man on earth, right, from coming from a pessimistic view, says, right, that everything is hebel. Says the teacher, completely hebel. And as we realize that and know Again, that this book, as I've already said, is not easy. This concept of Hebel is not easy to grasp. I mean, it's in the definition. You can't grasp it. Right? And yet, the wisest man on earth looks at life and says, it's Hebel. 
Right? Ecclesiastes, though, as we got to know as we bring to this, Ecclesiastes is not a book about God. Okay, it's one of the reasons why it's so confusing, and I think in some, oftentimes we come to it with, with weird conclusions. Okay, so we need to know at the foundation that Ecclesiastes is not a book about God. Okay, it is a book about human ideas. Okay, it's not a book about God. It's a book about human ideas. Um, it's ideas about how to survive in a world that is completely hevel. Right? How do I survive in a world that is completely hevel? Where there are questions that I can't find answers to. Right? When there are things that I can't understand. Right? How do I live in a world that is hevel? But this book, again, was not written as a theological book. And if the, again, theology is the study of God. It's not a theological book at all. Okay, it's an ideological book. It is a book about human ideas. Now, that's why, again, we struggle with it oftentimes because we come to the book of Ecclesiastes expecting a theological book because it's in the Bible. It's a, it's in, the Bible's about God. Right? But it's not a book about God at all. It's a book about human ideas. And as we, as we think about that and keep that in mind, I want to read for you then kind of the introduction or the premise of the teacher's rambling that we find in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Okay, so now actually turn your Bible to the book of Ecclesiastes. Okay, we're going to look at Ecclesiastes um, chapter 1, verses 3 through 18. Okay, Ecclesiastes 1, starting at verse 3. What do people get for all their hard work under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. The sun rises and the sun sets and then hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south and then turns north. Around and around it goes, blowing in circles. Rivers run into the sea and the sea is never full. And then the water returns again to the rivers and flows out again into the sea. Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. History merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Sometimes people say, here is something new, but actually it's old. Nothing is ever truly new. We don't remember what happened in the past, and in the future generations, no one will remember what we're doing now. I, the teacher, was the king of Israel, and I lived in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to search for understanding and to explore by wisdom everything being done under heaven. I soon discovered that God has dealt a tragic existence to the human race. I observed everything going on under the sun, and really, it's all hebel, like chasing the wind. What is wrong cannot be made right, and what is missing cannot be recovered. I said to myself, look, I'm wiser than any of the kings who ruled in Jerusalem before me. I have greater wisdom and knowledge than any of them. So I set out to learn everything from wisdom to madness and folly, but I learned firsthand that pursuing all of this is like chasing the wind. The greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. To increase knowledge only increases sorrow. See, and this is where we all stand up and clap, right? No, not at all, right? The tone of this is very pessimistic, is it not? Right, again, he's saying like, you know what? There's, again, he's saying, I'm the wisest person that ever lived. I had everything in my fingertips. I was the king of the most prosperous nation in the entire world, and yet it's all hevel. And, and he comes, again, this is a book of 
this teacher's human ideas as he rambles and bounces around through all of these different experiences and ideas of how the world works. Right? And yet, as we study through this, again, I want to set this foundation and realizing, again, this is not a theological book. Right? It's a book of human ideas. And yet, there are some theological things that the teacher never questioned. Okay, I want to point those out this morning. Okay, and we have to keep this in mind as we work our way through this book the next several weeks. Okay, number one is the teacher never questions whether God exists. Okay, in fact, that question is not even on the table for the teacher. He says, you know what, this world is completely hebel, right, but, but the one thing that is not meaningless, that is not hebel, is the fact that there is a God. That is 100% true. And that is explainable, and that is solid, right, that God exists. We see in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 17, I said to myself, in due season, God will judge everyone, both good and bad, for all their deeds. Again, you can sense the tone throughout the book where you can even sense that his voice even kind of quivers a little bit in some of the statements he makes in this book. But this one is as clear as, as ever. There is a God, right? And he will judge us. Okay, he never questions whether God exists. In fact, as you see, there are several places throughout the book, right, that he very clearly says God is real, even when everything else is hell. Okay, also, the next thing that he doesn't question is he never questions God's sovereignty. Okay, now sovereignty is a big scholarly word, and I'm going to tell you what it means right now. Okay, sovereignty okay, is, means that God is in control. That God is the ultimate authority. Right? That no matter what we can say, no matter what we can try and figure out, no matter what human wisdom tries to throw at it, ultimately God is the one in charge. Okay, no matter what any human governments do, no matter what reason does, no matter what the world does, no matter what nature does, no matter what, God is the one that ultimately has the final say. And that God is sovereign. Okay, that's what we mean when we say, again, when we look at the world and think the world is awfully hebel, but God is on his throne, right? What we're saying is that God is sovereign, right? That no matter how messed up our lives become or how messed up our world is, that God is still the last say. He is the ultimate authority. He is sovereign, right? And throughout this book and through all of his observations and, and all of the hebel that he finds, right, he never questions that God is in control. That God is the all-powerful God, right, who is the final authority. Okay, in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 5, he says, Just as you cannot understand the path of the wind or the mystery of a tiny baby growing in its mother's womb, so you cannot understand the activity of God who does all things. Right, he says, you know what, we might not understand it all. In fact, there are things that we have no idea how it happens, but God does. Right? God designed it, God does it, and we don't have the right or authority to question what he does. Because God is God. Right? Not only does he 
he exists, but also he is sovereign. And then the last thing that he never questions throughout the entire book, and even no matter how pessimistic he gets, he doesn't question God's love. In fact, he doesn't question that God loves us unconditionally and more than we can ever imagine. Right? No matter how hevel life ever feels, we are loved by God. And again, the teacher never questions it. In fact, in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, he says, even so, I've noticed one thing, at least it is good. It is good for people to eat, drink, and enjoy their work under the sun during their short life that God has given them and to accept their lot in life. And it is, it is a good thing to receive wealth from God and a good health to enjoy it. To enjoy your work and accept your lot in life, this is indeed a gift from God. God keeps such people so busy enjoying life that they, they take no time to brood over the past. Amen. Right, he's saying, you know what, no matter how bad things go, no matter how hevel life becomes, you're loved by God. Right, and, and again, nothing in this world can ever change that. No matter how hevel it feels, there is a God. He is sovereign. And he loves you. He loves you more than you can imagine. The overall purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes is to wrestle with the idea that life doesn't make sense. That things happen in this world that shouldn't happen. That there are some questions that just simply don't have good answers. And even so, God is on his throne and he loves you no matter what. Right, and as we realize that and as we jump into this pessimistic journey we're going to go on together through the next several weeks, as we can never question that God exists, that he is sovereign and that he loves us more than we can imagine. Right, and as we realize that, again, to lay this foundation this morning to dive into this study, is I want to end this morning with the conclusion. We're going to end with the, the words of the author, okay, which are found in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, where he says, that's the whole story. And here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. He says, no, no matter how hevel life becomes, Never question that God is God. Right? And, and what we are here to do is to fear God, I mean, love God and serve him, right? And do what he tells us to do. Right? And in fact, that's the only thing that matters. Because everything in life is Hebel, except for God. Lord God, we come to you this morning, and God, we, Lord, we know that sometimes life is really Hebel. But God, we can continue to live because you live. God, because you are God and you are in control. And God, even when life doesn't make sense, God, we can trust in you. God, trust in your love. God, and trust that you want the best for us. 
God, I pray, Lord, that we can take your light and your love and your joy, God, into a world that seems hopeless. And God, there's so many people, again, that are going through life, God, that know that hopeless feeling, but yet don't have you, God, to give the other side of the coin. And we pray, God, that we would take you into this hopeless world, Lord, and give them hope. And God, we thank you for the hope that you give us. God, for the love that you show us. And God, as we leave here today, God, help us to do life never questioning who you are and what you're doing. God, that we can journey closer to you this week. God, we can shine your light in this dark world. Lord, guide us as we leave. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.